Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Despite all the doubts and criticism from the public, Japan has officially begun discharging over a million metric tons of nuclear contaminated water from its damaged Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. What are the risks involved in discharging the wastewater? How will the radionuclides bioaccumulated in the food chain impact our marine life and ecosystems? Do we have sufficient monitoring and tracking in place towards this 30-year-long ocean release plan? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Professor Tillman Roth, co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, a group that won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize, and Wu Changhua, Vice Chair, Governing Council of Asia-Pacific Water Forum. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qinduo. Welcome to Dialogue. Changhua, I will start with you. You know, first of all, what was your initial reaction when you heard about Japan's announcement to release nuclear contaminated water into the ocean? I'm very disappointed. And uh, with this current situation, in a way that Japanese government has ignored all the different voices, particularly from the Pacific Island nations, from neighboring countries like China, South Korea, as well as actually local communities, fishermen in the Fukushima region there as well. But somehow the decision seems to have been made. The Japanese government, you know, releasing 132,000 gallons per day on average. So we'll see what's going to happen. We all know already there are tremendous uncertainties still there and there are questions to be answered. Somehow the decision has been made. That's telling a lot of things actually for the global community particularly from a governance perspective. And so the ocean seems to be becoming the final, you know, last dumping point, actually. So for things like this, actually, we don't want them on the land. Where do they go? We dump them into the ocean. I believe that's going to trigger, uh, you know, a new round of global debate about, you know, all the commitments we made already in terms of protect, protect biodiversity, including marine lives, protecting people's health, protecting people's livelihoods, but somehow actions like that are still allowed to move forward. So I'm hoping somehow a global community, a global debate uh, will get going. So that will look together uh, into how to reform a global uh, environmental governance. Professor Ralph, you know, Changhua mentioned an interesting point. Like it's really about our attitudes and you know, how to treat the ocean. By discharging nuclear contaminated water into the ocean, we treat the ocean like this is the place to dump whatever we don't want. Yes, I, as has been mentioned, I think this was not unexpected, but I think it's still disappointing. I mean, the Japanese government formally announced two years ago that they were heading for this, and I think everything that they've done since then has really been softening up the public and preparing the ground for that. But I think it's an unfortunate history that is being continued here. It's a really old, I would say, outdated approach to management of, of hazardous waste to simply, you know, that dilution is somehow the solution to pollution and, and putting it out of sight, out of mind. In common territory, it takes it out of Japan's jurisdiction once it's in the water. But of course, then it's, it creates a transboundary and transgenerational pollution problem 
the tragedy for me is that this could have been avoided. You know, there are better alternatives that haven't been adequately considered. But I think even now that the discharge is beginning, it's not too late to reconsider this. This discharge is projected to continue for at least 30 years. So it's quite feasible for this program to be interrupted and for what should have happened earlier, but full consideration of alternatives to be implemented uh, to be undertaken. And I hope that there is sufficient pressure from citizens and governments around the world to urge the Japanese government to reconsider this plan, even after it started. Professor Ralph, you know, you mentioned several interesting points, but I want to start with you with, you with this, you know, like uh, it appeared that you are unconvinced by the Japanese government, which uh, tried to present this uh, release as, uh, you know, the, uh, with after the treatment, they tried to present or you know, give us an impression that uh, this treated water uh, they are clean and with the dilution in the ocean, nothing is uh, hazardous, it's safe. So you are not convinced? No, I have to say I'm not convinced and I'm very much influenced by the, the views and the detailed reports of the independent international scientific expert panel that was appointed by the Pacific Islands Forum as has engaged repeatedly with the government and TEPCO, uh, the vendor, the operator of the, of the stricken plant and also with the IAEA to the extent that it was possible to really try and understand the science behind what's in the water and how well the purification system works. TEPCO has unfortunately a history um, during the whole management of this disaster and even before, one has to say, of, of not being forthcoming or fully honest or transparent about the situation. In 2013, it emerged that there had been large leaks of water into the ocean, which TEPCO had concealed. In 2018, it was it emerged that the treated water, 70% of the water that had already been treated by the purification system, had multiple radioisotopes above the regulatory limits, in some cases up to 20,000 times higher than the regulatory limit. When the Pacific Islands Forum expert panel requested detailed information of what was in the tanks and how well the purification system worked, the evidence that they were given was very incomplete. Incomplete sampling over relatively short periods of time, sampling just very limited samples from groups of tanks. So still huge questions about what's in the tanks. And one has to understand that this is not a normal operations. You know, this is not a carefully controlled environment. This is a mess created by a very complicated disaster. And there are sludges and solid material and rubbish in the tanks. The composition of the water will change over time. So firstly, we don't really know what's in the tanks. And secondly, we haven't got evidence that the purification system will work. The Japanese government has simply said, well, we'll just have to apply, put the water through the system as often as is required to make it clean. But this is not something that should be taken on faith. This should be taken on demonstrated evidence uh, that it works. So this is really a leap of faith. We don't know that the system works as intended. And of course, it's important that what is discharged is actually monitored very closely, but that's too late. That should not be the point at which we know exactly what's coming out the pipe. It's too late to stop it then. 
preventive action needs to be taken upstream of that. The system should be demonstrated to work before the water is discharged. So I, unfortunately, the history of, of this uh, doesn't leave much grounds for confidence and, and the evidence available. And I should remind you, your viewers, that in 1991, um, there was a serious uh, scandal when TEPCO was shown to have over many years falsified building reports and regulatory inspection reports and the chairman of TEPCO had to resign. So the company has a long history of bad behaviour and the most important um, examination of the Fukushima nuclear disaster I think was the independent investigation commission that the Japanese parliament commissioned, the first ever and only such commission. And it was very scathing in its report in 2012 that public health and safety was not the priority and that the management of the disaster had been incompetent. Those who led that investigation, particularly Professor Kiyoshi Kurokawa, has repeatedly said since that very little has changed in Japan in the management of nuclear issues. So unfortunately, the history as well as the current evidence doesn't give us much grounds for confidence. Changhua, I wonder if you have a similar attitude. Obviously, there seems there's a lot of suspicion surrounding the so-called treatment process by the Japanese side. Theoretically, for things like this, and there should be you know, extensive consultation with the key stakeholders there, even though in terms of format, yes, there is a sort of Pacific Island and nations, a sort of aspirin group put together. And even local farmers, uh, you know, fisheries also have been sort of expressing their opinions uh, very aggressively against such a, such a step. But somehow, as we all learned today, and such a consultation, whatever the opinions expressed so far, have not been respected at all. There seems to be that a decision already made. Uh, whatever you guys say, there is a process of consultation, but actually there is more like a meaningless uh, consultation there. Uh, I think the Japanese government made the decision in part on the basis of the report provided by the IAEA. Uh, Professor Ruff, you know, the report says uh, uh, the treated water will have a negligible radiological impact on people and the environment. So to what extent would you agree or disagree with the IAEA conclusion? I don't have confidence that the evidence to justify that conclusion is, is robust. Uh, the IAEA is a conflicted organization intrinsically. It has, in its statute, it has the task to promote nuclear power and peaceful uses of nuclear energy, but it also has the responsibility to regulate those activities. This, these functions may be at times in conflict and they should not be carried out by the same agency. It's worth noting that even though the IAEA is, is a United Nations organization, there are other parts of the United Nations, the broad family of organizations that make up the United Nations, that have taken quite a different view of this planned discharge. For example, there have been no less than six special rapporteurs on human rights working under the UN Human Rights Commission who have with responsibilities in different areas of food, and health and waste management and environmental uh, issues that have taken great exception and been very concerned uh, about this discharge from their respective points of view. So I think that bears noting. The IAEA has relied entirely on Japanese information 
And I think the assessment has been presented in a way which is somewhat deceptive in that the IAEA has said, Director General Grossi has said repeatedly, and, and he says in his foreword to the report, that this is not an endorsement or a recommendation. But then he travels to Japan with much fanfare and television cameras, you know, in a carefully staged, very prominent event where he hands the report to Prime Minister Kishida. You know, he spends many days in Japan uh, being seen, talking to all kinds of groups, visiting Fukushima. It's about as obvious an endorsement, you know, a practical endorsement, yeah. as you could imagine, really. Right. So the IAEA is, is speaking a little with a forked tongue here, I think, you know, because it clearly is promoting this and has accepted essentially completely uh, the Japanese evidence and argument. It's not been a, a critical independent voice in that sense. So I think that's an important perspective. And I think also, you know, science is evolving and many of the regulatory standards that around radioactive substances and tritium in particular, and tritium and carbon-14 are the two substances which are not reduced at all by the purification system, that we have grossly underestimated the effects of these on the basis of recent evidence. A comprehensive recent review by colleagues at the University of South Carolina in the United States shows extensive evidence that tritium causes, rather than being benign as it's been considered, is in fact an important radiological toxin and is probably much more important than we have uh, thought in the past. And I think that's reflected in the different environmental standards, which probably differ for tritium more than for almost any other substance. So, for example, in Canada, the regulatory limit for tritium is 7,000 becquerels per litre of water. Japan says it's applying a 1,500, so 1,500 becquerels per litre limit. The limit in the United States is half that, 740 becquerels per litre. And the limit in California, which has a pretty robust evidence-based process, is 15. So there is a fact difference of you know, many hundreds in the regulatory limit. That tells you that either there's too much politics involved or the science is, is not clear or has evolved over time. And one of the reasons I think why the IAEA has not wanted to be very critical of this discharge is because tritium is unfortunately the most common radioactive substance that's emitted from nuclear power plants. So it's emitted in large amounts and every country that operates nuclear power plants is, is putting tritium into the environment. Because that's such a widespread practice, I think there's been a reluctance to, to re-examine that process. Uh, Changhua, uh, you know, at least uh, you know, and the consensus is, you know, there's a, a tritium, this radioactive uh, isotope of hydrogen, is simply practically not not able uh, to be filtered uh, through this system, and then we see here, of course, uh, you know, uh, Professor Robert Richmond, uh, director of the Kiwalo Marine Laboratory at the University of Hawaii and Manua. You know, he's among a group of international scientists working with the Pacific Island Forum to assess Japan's wastewater release plan. And he calls it, the Japanese process, uh, or the Japanese treatment, as ill-advised and premature. He says the pollutants like tritium can pass through various levels of the food chain, including plants, animals, and bacteria, and be bioaccumulated. Uh, meaning they will build up in the marine uh, ecosystem. 
I wonder what's your take on this argument, on this debate here? I totally agree. We all know in the ocean uh, is a life, you know, web of life, right? We have fight, you know, fight um, uh, all kind of microorganisms and uh, marine lives, whatever. So you started to see this sort of a food chain within the marine system there. Of course, in the end, we all human beings eat, uh, you know, seafood. And uh, so they will end up in our body, threatening our health there as well. Secondly, not only that, second vehicle, as we all recognize, microplastics has been a recognized global challenge there as well. It's ubiquitous everywhere actually in the ocean. And that happens to be another sort of potential carrier of this sort of elements into our food system food system, food chain, and again, ending up not only harming the marine life, but also human health there as well. Now, what, what's the solution at this moment? There seems to be no solution. If you discharge, charge it into the marine system, there's no way you're going to avoid the negative impact uh, because one particular factor that scientific studies have shown demonstrated again and again is a bioaccumulative because when you get into our body, into the meat, into the fat, you cannot really just get it out of your system very easily. So they accumulate in your, in your body. And when it gets to a certain level, that's going to cause cancers and other life-threatening sort of health challenges there. That's just a hard fact and a scientific reality there. We have to be recognized there. There are uh, scientists uh, claiming that uh, you know, these releases should be uh, delayed several more decades to allow for advances in nuclear contaminated water treatment so we can avoid probably the possible pollution. After all, the method is dilution in ocean water. So what are the alternatives to the discharging into the ocean? Well, a few ways of looking at it. If, uh, you know, the water quality discharge as claimed as, as a sort of safe by the Japanese government, then there could be other alternatives. You don't have to discharge into the ocean, right? Impacting not only Japanese coastal areas, but also literally in the end it's global, right? Because uh, flowing with the currents, ocean currents, it's going to go Pacific regions, Pacific, and then to other parts of the world there as well. Uh, so basically say, okay, do you have, a, you know, because it's a safe, it's claimed to be safe, the negative impact could be negligible uh, as claimed by IAEA. So there should be other ways of dealing with that. Secondly, I really think actually there are, there should be technologies available. Uh, as I said early on, if not totally actually uh, address the challenges there, but somehow based on the technical uh, discussions I've had actually last night and this morning, uh, within the organization called the World Green Design Organization, which I've been serving as the vice president there as well. So there seems to be technical capability that could really help tremendously. This is from China's side. Rather than just pointing fingers to the Japanese government, I think many players in China would like to really help in a very constructive manner to really address that. So I'm hopeful at this moment Somehow, I hope the door will be open to allow innovators like that to come to Japan and work with the Japanese governments, companies, different parties there to really find the solutions there. Those are probably the two potential alternatives there. But as I said, it, you know, the decision is made. I, I hope that, as Professor Rob said, if Japanese government is open, uh, it's not too late, actually, to find other alternatives as quickly as possible. So that hopefully somehow that will move forward. I might just add to what, what Chung-Wah said earlier about, you know, other alternatives. 
One very simple alternative is just time. If tritium is the main residual contaminant, it has a half-life of 12 years. So if you stored the water in properly seismically safe, purpose-built tanks, not these poorly constructed, hastily built tanks that have proliferated on the site, and stored the water for 60 years, 97% of the tritium will be gone. So it will then essentially no longer be an issue. And if there are other longer-lived isotopes like cesium or strontium in the water, they will also decay very substantially. After 60 years, 75% of any of those isotopes will have gone. So simple storage is... Um, is a very effective way of, of, of helping to deal with this problem. And what's really driving this is the Japanese plan for decommissioning the facility. So removing the spent fuel, which is molten, a molten mess, you know, at the bottom of three of the damaged reactor buildings, and then restoring this site to clean use. You know, eventually there's talk of returning it to housing, which is difficult to foresee any time, uh, you know, within a few centuries. But that's a spurious argument, I think, on several counts. Um, decommissioning is, is way behind, looks increasingly unrealistic, and really, I think, warrants revisiting. Will it be possible to de decommission Fukushima? A growing number of experts doubt that. So probably what we need to head towards is some sort of containment, an impermeable wall in the ground to stop leakage of isotopes into the the groundwater and into the ocean with some kind of eventually cover as there is over the damaged Chernobyl plant to prevent atmospherical releases. So I think this whole basis for the urgency, to, the need to make room on the site for decommissioning deserves questioning. And the second aspect is that there is actually, even if there's no room on the site, according to this plan, there is plenty of room in the neighbouring areas where foreseeably the land will not be used for agricultural people's dwellings for a very long time. And where already the 14 plus million cubic metres of soil, contaminated soil that have been scraped together uh, from parks and playgrounds and schools and public places across Fukushima Prefecture have been transported for storage. On top of that contaminated soil, there is ample room to build more storage facilities. So I think the urgency and the argument of running out of space certainly uh, are open to serious question. Uh, Professor, earlier you mentioned, you know, very briefly, you mentioned there's a, once the discharge is done, there's nothing we can do. So there's a lack of uh, you know, a system to monitor and track this uh, discharge of water into the ocean? Well, certainly monetary systems should be um, set up and expanded, and the IAEA has indicated that they will establish a permanent presence at the Fukushima plant, uh, largely to monitor what's coming out the pipe. But I think what's needed is a much more uh, upstream and preventive approach to, you know, not just to monitor what comes out. It's too late at that point then to influence what comes out. Uh, we need to work upstream of that. But I think it's appropriate for all countries um, mm -hmm. in Jan Japan's neighbourhood that, uh, that, and that uh, within the path of ocean currents from Japan to review their monitoring of, of seafood uh, and seafood products um, to, to look for any changes. Uh, but, but 
And one aspect of this that I think is often poorly understood is that, of course, material will be diluted, but the total amount of material which is going to be additional material which is going to be deposited in the environment is not changed by its dilution. You know, the concentration will be less, but the total amount doesn't change by dilution. That's not by itself a solution. Changhua, lastly, there's a concentration or bioaccumulation. What are the countries to be affected by the discharge of nuclear uh, contaminated water? Well, besides the environmental, dam- environmental damage and the public health damages there, we have to look at the people's livelihoods. And uh, uh, if you look at it, you know, China has a long coastline, uh, Korea, so many countries in our region, including Pacific Islands, fishing, fishery has been an important part of people's livelihoods. So this goes beyond just a health perspective, you know, impact there. If you look at what decision has been made by the Japanese government in terms of the livelihood, so the, the national government in Japan uh, made announcement, I think the, the prime minister made, uh, you know, made an announcement just a Tuesday that they are going to compensate 200 million US dollars uh, for local fisheries and uh, another $340 million actually for local farming communities there. So this is sort of interesting setting in a way. They are aware of the you know potential threats to uh, local livelihoods. And within the country, they do have the mechanism to provide a certain level of compensation. Whether people feel that that's enough or not, then we'll see. Then how about the other countries and the other regions there? And uh, should there be a compensation mechanism in place? Uh, that the Japanese government should put, tega- put together to compensate neighboring countries and also Pacific Island nations there, I think probably I would go for it. I would support that option. But in terms of how much, how that's going to be set up, that needs to be decided or discussed actually among the key stakeholders, at least from the regional perspective. Ideally, that need to be brought up to the UN level. Make sure set set precedent precedents actually for similar challenges or you know related challenges in the future to prevent. One thing I think I do my message I want to echo very strongly what Professor Rob has said. Science has tremendous uncertainty, and the scientific principle in that particular case is preventive, right? And what's happening now in Japan, the decision made is totally against that principle. I think we all need to be aware of that, and we should voice our opinions, opposition to that. But in terms of solutions, we'll see. Let's really get more parties together to address this issue. Well, thank you, Changhua. Thank you, Professor Ruff. Thank you for your time and insights. With that, we come to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qingdu. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.